today I'm joined by two scholars who are going to talk about teacher evaluation. Allison Levine is an assistant professor of instructional leadership at Utah State University. Using her training as an educational psychologist and classroom researcher, she has conducted research on teacher retention, teachers' beliefs, teacher supervision and evaluation, and Latinx students' experiences. Her work has been featured in Teaching and Teacher Education, Teacher's College Record, Journal of Teacher Education, Education Policy Analysis Archives, and Humanity and Society, as well as in four recent books co-authored with our other guest, Thomas Good. More recently, she has merged her interest in educational policy, specifically teacher evaluation, and teaching and motivation in schools that serve Latinx students to focus on instructional practices and leadership in schools that serve diverse youth and dual-language learners. Tom Good is Professor Emeritus at the University of Arizona. He is a member of the National Academy of Education and holds fellow status in both the American Psychological Association and the American Educational Research Association. Among other notable service activities for the field, he edited the elementary school journal for over 20 years. For over 40 years, his research has focused on studies of teacher effectiveness and teachers' performance expectations in elementary school classrooms. Together, Allison and Tom authored a new research brief for policymakers and the public entitled Addressing Teacher Evaluation Appropriately, and this was done for Division 15 of the American Psychological Association as part of a new ongoing initiative by their policy committee. The brief is a really helpful review and critique of current teacher evaluation practices, as well as a source for Allison and Tom's recommendations for more productive directions for teacher evaluation. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. You're welcome. So to start us off, can you give us a brief overview of kind of the main points of the brief? In our uh, a brief on teacher evaluation, we really wanted to focus on trends that have kind of happened in the last decade, um, teacher evaluation trends nationally here in the U.S., uh, specifically pointing to the flawed practices uh, in teacher evaluation reform that heavily focuses on statistical approaches like using value-added measures, measures that um, try to acquire the growth of an individual teacher um, on their student's achievement or growth over time, as well as the observation of teachers. And so in our brief, we really wanted to pinpoint these problematic practices and specifically address some possibilities for policy as well as practitioners, uh, school leaders, district leaders that are either designing teacher evaluation plans or are also uh, implementing them. In particular, we have a new opportunity under the Every Student Succeeds Act uh, to re-envision and be a little bit more flexible around these teacher evaluation plans. So we really think this policy brief is really timely in terms of informing some of those changes that might be happening across the states. So you called them problematic practices. So can you give us a sense of, why don't we start with value-added modeling? Why is that a problematic practice? So essentially, value-added modeling seeks to take a teacher and compare that teacher to other teachers that teach similar students and acquire that individual teacher's growth relative to kind of this sort of comparison group. We know that value-added measures often do not adequately compare teachers, and they can't control for all of those different contexts in which teachers teach. Special education students, high mobility schools, um, the list goes on and on and on of all different factors that might influence how a teacher's effectiveness may vary based on a variety of different student-level variables. We also know that teachers' effectiveness varies over time. So when we're looking at these value-added scores, oftentimes the minimum is at least three years of data, um, if not more. And even with lots and lots of data, 10 years of data, 
uh, for an individual teacher. We know that we can still be wrong about that teacher's effectiveness um, nearly 12% of the time. So when we're making those types of decisions, high stakes decisions, based on data that's naturally flawed, right, um, that becomes really difficult for someone. We know what those error rates are. And we're talking about potentially maybe firing a teacher who might actually ideally be effective mm -hmm. or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Um, and we also know that these VAM scores don't help teachers improve instruction. So when they get these scores back, um, it doesn't say, oh, by the way, you know, you were really effective in teaching this particular concept in math, or um, here's an area where, you know, across the board, we saw some weakness. This might be an area for improvement in instruction next year. It doesn't pinpoint for teachers what they did or didn't do wrong. And oftentimes they might teach the same from year to year and have really different value added scores. So it makes it really difficult for teachers and administrators to make sense of some of that kind of data. Those are just a few of the examples. Just another comment on the problem with value added. Uh, our achievement tests themselves, at least the way they're used, uh, achievement tests can provide some useful information, but too often, and typically, achievement data are used as sort of a end-of-the-year summary. They only express where students ended and don't look at relative progress. And some students make enormous progress during the year, but because they started behind other students for various reasons, their relative progress gets lost. So it, it sounds like there's a, a number of challenges with value-added models, which strike me as models that are maybe more useful when you have, for example, random assignment of teachers, when you have an outcome measure that's very objective and where prior performance plays less of a role. Um, and I, I think that's just not a realistic expectation of a typical classroom environment or a typical school system. So in your brief, you talk about how this can be really problematic. It can, Allison, as you said, it can lead to student uh, teachers being fired. And it sounds like you're saying in the policy brief that actually this could be one reason why reform efforts have not been successful. Is that a fair way of characterizing it? That's absolutely one of the reasons. I mean, in our book, uh, the most recent book that Tom and I published together, uh, we talk a little bit more about sort of breaking down some of these uh, flawed approaches, but also looking specifically at um, the implications of some of these. I'll just give you an example that we didn't really talk about in, in our brief, uh, is one assumption that these you know, high-stakes teacher evaluation approaches make is that when I fire a teacher who I believe, based on the data, is ineffective, or I decide not to rehire that teacher, that I have a pool of adequate teachers that are going to come in and be more effective. Mm. Um, and that's not always the case for every school. We have some schools, highly affluent schools, that are getting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of applicants um, for a one single position. Yeah, they might have their choice of teachers from that pool. And so maybe when they are replacing that teacher that has fired, indeed, that they're student achievement is going up overall over time, right? But we know for schools that um, serving students who live in poverty, we know for those particular schools that that's not necessarily the hiring retention pattern that they have. They have a harder time retaining their teachers and they have a harder time hiring teachers. And so there may be some differential impact that happens at the school level that is really impacting that there's winners and losers perhaps in some of these reform efforts, but overall that we see some of these flawed practices maybe undermining teacher development in general. Just to uh, build on Allison's point, high stakes evaluation 
simply evaluate teachers and often erroneously, uh, but they do nothing to help teachers to develop and to become better teachers and more sensitive to students that they're teaching. Right. That, that makes sense to me, right? So you tell me that my value added modeling score is half a standard deviation below my peers. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how to improve. I, I don't know where that came from. Um, and I think many people might say, well, the problem here is the statistical approach and we just need a better way of evaluating teachers. And they might go to what some feels like kind of the opposite end of the continuum. They'd say, well, let's just observe teachers. Let's have humans in classrooms doing more qualitative, more observational evaluations. And, and that's the way to help teachers do better and also evaluate teachers. But you have some concerns about observations as well, correct? Well, first of all, I'd just say that uh, I do think that observational data can be helpful if used appropriately. Mm -hmm. But to your question, yes, uh, the way in which observation systems are used have many problems. For example, teaching is so complex that no observation system can measure uh, or record teacher actions, student interactions with all aspects of teaching. Observation instruments are very selective, and they see only certain things in classrooms. These things may be important, but to give you an example of one problematic aspects of all observation systems currently being used is that observation systems measure the teacher's interactions with the class as a whole. They tell us nothing about patterns of interactions that students have with individual students or groups of students. Mm -hmm. For example, in too many classrooms, often children of color and those who come from low-income families, regardless of color, receive less challenging opportunities. The common observation system gives us no information about how teacher and classroom opportunities are spread among individual students. It's clear in some classrooms that many students receive a more pleasant, more supportive classroom than do others. Certainly not in all, but in some classrooms, this is the case. And, and that is an interaction and the type of disparity that these observations don't pick up because they're at kind of a coarser grain at the whole class level. That's correct. And they could with supplementation, but as they are used, uh, they just simply miss this information. And it strikes me that uh, you know there's a lot of talk nowadays about getting away from common pedagogical techniques involving whole class instruction and moving to more group-based, discussion-based, one-on-one or, or teacher and small group practices. So it may be in the past, the percentage of time that a teacher was working with a whole class was larger. It would strike me that now it's probably even smaller than it used to be and therefore calling into question these observations even more than they might have been in the past. Absolutely. And, and from 
someone who's done classroom observations, and Tom can speak even more to this, um, when you have a teacher who breaks into small groups, then it's you as the observer's role about what, what will you do then? So imagine you're a school leader in the classroom and you're observing this teacher. Are you going around from group to group? Obviously, you can't hear what's happening in every single group from the entire time. Um, and it's likely that a teacher is working with a single group while the other groups have tasks that are happening you know, simultaneously in the classroom as well. And so then that becomes the format of the instructional approach obviously becomes another important variable. I think uh, a majority of these high inference observation instruments, the ones that Tom has been discussing, you know, where um, you're looking at a teacher's quality practices and you're rating them on a scale of one to five, um, oftentimes aren't picking up, aren't able to be sensitive to these different types of instructional formats that might be happening in the classroom. Simply put, uh, I agree with the implication, Jeff, of your remarks. When teachers use individual formats or they use small group instruction or they are engaged in project-based science or project-based work in other curriculum areas such as social studies, current observation systems that are properly used would provide no information about the quality of the instructional practice being implemented. Well, that certainly sounds problematic. Uh, that's not a good thing, um, particularly, as you say, in, a, in the kind of the high stakes teacher evaluation environment we're in right now. So I presented a little bit of a false dichotomy here. I mean, it's not the case that there are statistical approaches on one end and observational approaches on the other end of the continuum and never the twain shall meet. And, you know, it's it's not quite that clean cut. But I think the policy brief does make a really nice case that um, there are concerns with each. So I know that many parents, um, many families, many policymakers, they want teacher evaluation to be done well both for the students and for the teachers. And so if these approaches aren't working as well as we would hope, what do you think we should do? What, what recommendations would you have to help teachers and students better understand how the teacher is performing in the classroom and how they could do better? I think what Tom and I illustrate in our brief and in, in our other writing that we do is that there's lots of opportunities, I think, to think differently and better um, about the time that school leaders or other observers are spending in their classroom. Um, Tom mentioned, you know, supplementing observation instruments. And I think you can get really creative uh, in observing in classrooms with these understandings in mind. So for example, perhaps you do have that high inference instrument um, that you're using or that's required by your district, um, but maybe you also have a seating chart where you can mark off you know, who's being called on in the classroom or not, um, or perhaps that's something that the teacher is particularly interested in. Um, perhaps you know it's going to be a small group instructional lesson, um, and so maybe there's going to be some other elements where you, maybe you're collecting data on what's happening in each of the four groups or five groups that are happening. If you're doing a lesson where the goal is really for students to to come up with hypotheses at the end. And so the lesson is developing and unfolding as opposed to being really explicit at the beginning, you know, maybe your format's going to be a little bit different in terms of, of what you're going to observe. So you may be expecting the objectives maybe happen, maybe they happen at the beginning, but maybe they also happen really heavily emphasis on the end of the lesson. Mm. And so it might be really important for you to be there at certain points throughout the lesson um, if you're an observer or even observing a unit from start to finish. You know, what, how, how does a teacher set up, you know, a unit of instruction if there's going to be, say, 
three, four lessons on this particular topic. What does the beginning look like? What's happening in the middle? And then what's happening at the end? Um, clearly, we would expect different practices as if a teacher sort of wrapping up or reviewing something as opposed to introducing something for the first time. And um, so I think you can get really unique approaches to capture those important nuances and the complexity of teaching that teachers do every single day, but aren't really necessarily counted for or acknowledged in these observation instruments. So that illustrates really well the dangers of kind of um, surprise evaluations. You know, somebody walks into a classroom with a clipboard, you know, 10 minutes into the beginning of the session, they watch for 20 minutes, they check some boxes, they walk out. Um, It doesn't at all get into the teacher's intention, their planning, their goals, how the pedagogies might be implemented in terms of reaching those goals, kind of what students are thinking. Um, I think you've done a nice job of illustrating just how kind of data thin those types of observations can be. Yeah. And I mean, I do think they do give some pulse, right? And I think it just it's really important for school years to know what am I trying to gather here? What information am I looking for? And what does the teacher need in order to get better at their work? And I think a seasoned teacher may have very different needs and desires in terms of growth as a new teacher. Um, and I think that's also another factor that's important to consider as well. You know, there might have a teacher who says, you know, I've taught this lesson six times. You know, I want to try a new innovative approach as opposed to a teacher who says, this is the first time I've taught this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So obviously you have an entirely different lens as an observer if you're going in and observing that lesson from the teacher who's taught it six times as opposed to one who, you know, is doing it for the first time. And clearly you would also have different feedback mechanisms. So I think it's important to, um, without being completely overwhelming, be sensitive to some of these variables. Yeah, teaching is is very complex, and there are so many variables that there has to be a much more sophisticated way of looking and thinking about what teachers are doing and trying to accomplish. And one thing that's often overlooked is that there is no single teacher action that always correlates with student achievement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can do too much, you can do too little, you can do it at the wrong time. And at the best, if you think of combinations of behaviors, patterns of behavior over time, you can make some inferences and provide information that's helpful to think about what's going on, what might be changed, and to actually look at then if those changes are implemented, if in fact students respond in in different ways. But I think fundamentally uh, to do this, to move to the sorts of things I'm talking about now, the purpose of evaluation has to be to develop teaching, to have conversations with teachers, to look at things that teachers are trying to do in the classroom and to give them information about things that teachers find difficult or problematic. The notion of simply evaluating teachers with one or two observations is an elite and simply erroneous uh, assumption that teaching is too complex to make conclusions based upon two or three observations, but yet many people do that, and that's one of the reasons we find that teachers are uncomfortable with their jobs, uh, don't feel supported, uh, don't feel that they're understood, and indeed that they're being scapegoated often for things that they cannot control. 
Uh, we know that teachers are important. Teachers are incredibly important. In fact, the single most important thing that can be altered in terms of student achievement is teacher actions. But still, teacher actions, under the best circumstances, only account for 14 to 20 percent of the variation in student achievement, and often even less. So to think that teachers can do everything, uh, especially in schools serving students with high numbers of students who live in poverty, is simply an erroneous assumption. Uh, we need to help teachers and we need to provide them with the conditions in which they can cope and successfully teach in difficult environments. So anyway, I think that part of the goals of federal reform is to create the impression that teaching is easy and if only teachers would work harder or do X or do Y, things would improve. Uh, and it's not that simple. And it's all also the case uh, that most teachers are working uh, and are reasonably competent instructors. This notion of the bad teacher is overgeneralized. And surely, as in any field, there may be some teachers that are less than competent. But in general, as a normative sense to start with, teachers are doing a reasonably good job. And our role is to help them to become better with observational information and resources. I like the way that you phrased that. And I think that makes a, a lot of sense. It's really moving teacher evaluation from this punitive, you know, yes, no perspective to one that is recognizing that we, we have an obligation to ensure that our teachers are doing well and doing well for our students, but that teaching is complex. It has to involve formative feedback. It has to have opportunities for teachers to grow and learn. And our feedback processes need to help teachers through that process. So I, I really like what you said there. It strikes me that it might tie in really nicely to the book, Allison, that I think you mentioned earlier um, that the two of you wrote that was called Enhancing Teacher Education, Development and Evaluation, Lessons Learned from Educational Reform. Um, it strikes me that many educational reforms have moved from kind of simple dichotomous, you know, good student, bad student, good teacher, bad teacher to a more developmental, a more growth-based approach. And it sounds like teacher evaluation needs to do the same thing. I guess I'm wondering, based upon that book and your own experiences, what other factors do you think have contributed to the difficulties we've had with school reform? I mean, there are many, many, many factors involved. But let me give you at least one thing that I think is very important in terms of public perceptions. We have repeatedly in educational reform had a statement like Sputnik, nation at risk, no child left behind, uh, so forth and so on, federal statements, even federal law in Race to the Top, as well as commissions, various reports saying that teaching and schools are failing and we are facing an economic if not a military crisis because of the poor quality of our schools. So we can go back to Sputnik in 1954 uh, throughout the last 70 years or so and see that we have a crisis and the implementation fails and it fails leaving the implicit impression that we knew the answer 
but teachers wouldn't implement it or wouldn't implement it well, and therefore we continue with abysmal education. However, pundits do not point out that we won the space war or that our military economic concerns with Japan or wherever were simply addressed uh, with the same public school education that we've, we continue to have. And in this sense, I'm not just trying to say there are no problems, that schools can't be improved. They can, but we need to start with the base rate that American schools are so varied. These descriptions of failed American schools make no sense. Mm-hmm. Some of our school districts are number one in the world. Some of our school districts are toward the bottom. And the thinking that there is a normative behavior of what American schools do is simply wrong. And in that sense, it places in the public mind that teachers and schooling are not doing what they should be doing. And hence, this has sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's harder to get funds for schools. Teachers are less willing to become teachers, given this public criticism that is unfair and relentless. So it sounds like a moral panic that's leading to a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's a little frightening. So Allison, earlier you spoke about the need to diversify, deepen, and more critically utilize teacher evaluation systems. And Tom was just talking about the need for people to be more thoughtful and to gather uh, a more diverse set of inputs when making um, decisions about issues of schooling and ideas about schooling. What should the average parent do? What should the average parent do when they, they want to understand teachers, they want to understand teaching, they want to get a sense of whether their local school is a good one, how they can help with that? What, what, should, what should the average person do? For me, I think you have to go to school. <laughs> I don't know, all of us have been to school, but um, I, you know, I think in order to really understand um, the complexity of teaching and to understand sort of the culture within a school, you really need to spend a day there mm. and really get an understanding of of the inner workings of the classrooms and and how the teachers are working with one another. And I think that that actually is probably the most accurate data collection that you can do and is something that I do as a parent as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But Tom, you might have some other suggestions too about how to push back on the system. No, no, I I agree with you absolutely. Uh, As one data point, if you look at citizens' attitude toward public schools and whether they would want their children to become a teacher, whether they think their schools are doing a good job or a poor job, the data split very nicely. For those parents who have children in school, they are very supportive of American education, public schools. What is more problematic are citizens who do not have children uh, in school and who therefore have only secondhand or thirdhand information, and thus their opinion of schools depends upon media reports And often, unfortunately, these reports that tell us that schools are in crisis and that we need fundamental sweeping change. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, being in schools, looking at schools, and 
I recently uh, was on a research team that looked at schools uh, serving low-income students, and it was representative sample of schools throughout the state of Arizona. Uh, some of these schools, the prominent student population was Indian, other Hispanic, uh, other white, and various combinations of kids who were poor and uh, teachers and principals were working trying to provide them with meaningful education. And in our observation, looking in these classrooms, the teachers were doing a reasonably good job. Uh, we've reported these findings in peer-reviewed journals. And so part of the issue is to understand that when you have high density of poverty and no resources, it's very difficult to bring about achievement. And here, if you look at end-of-the-year achievement as opposed to relative achievement, you get quite different pictures. Mm. Uh, some teachers are doing you know, a really good job of moving kids along, but they start from way behind and the progress that they're making often isn't noted. And sometimes that progress is uh, quite substantial. I think that makes a, a lot of sense. It strikes me that if we want to better understand teacher performance, if we better want to better understand schools, if we want to better understand the kind of policies that we need to help make schools better, we need to be in schools. Whether you're a parent, whether you're a policymaker, it requires investment of the self and more than just, as you said, looking at a number out of a value added. Absolutely. So once again, thank you very much, Allison and Tom, for all of your hard work on this issue and education reform in general. I want to point our listeners again to your policy brief entitled Addressing Teacher Evaluation Appropriately. That's from Division 15 of the American Psychological Association, and people can find that online. And I certainly encourage them to check that out. And then to also check out your book, Enhancing Teacher Education, Development and Evaluation, Lessons Learned from Educational Reform, and that's published by Rutledge. But thank you again very much for your time. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. 